Hey everyone, Glenn here jumping in at the top of the show just to talk with you about what's coming up on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. The episode you're about to hear is episode number 81, which means that in the time distortion that Brandon and I live in, we are getting ready to record episode 100, which is uh, quite a milestone, at least from our perspective. Uh, really, I, I can't believe we have actually gotten here before we've even gotten a decade into Wolf's writing career. So anyway, as you can imagine, we would like to take a little pause when we get there and do something celebratory, but we'd also like to do something commemorative. When Gene Wolfe passed away six months ago now, we, we asked people to record their stories about what Wolfe and, and what his work have meant to them, and we're going to include those in episode 100. And so this is a call for, for more contributions along those lines. And you don't need anything fancy to record yourself. You can just do it on your phone. And then you can email that file to us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. We'd also really love to hear you reading your favorite passage from any of Wolf's work. It doesn't have to be something that we have covered yet. You also could just ask us to read and discuss it if that's what you'd prefer, and we'd be delighted to do that. I mean, we're going to be sharing some of our own favorites in this episode as well. Finally, and I, I promise we'll get to the episode in just a minute, finally, we'd also really love to answer questions you might have about us or about the show. And so really, I guess what we're getting at here is that we'd like to put together a show for episode 100 that's focused on you, focused on the listener. And we'd love your readings. We'd love your questions. We'd love your three favorite passages. But all right, I won't get in the way anymore. So here we go. Here is The Death of Dr. Island. Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. In this episode, we are talking about the novella The Death of Dr. Island, which was originally published in Universe 3 in 1973. We read it in the story collection, The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories, Though you can also find it in The Best of Gene Wolfe, rightly so. And this is a novella. It's, it's actually quite a long novella. It might actually have a higher word count than a story by John B. Marsh does. So we're going to split our coverage across five episodes. It's going to be four recap episodes and then one discussion episode. So this episode, the first recap episode, we're covering up to page 85 in The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. Yeah, I'm really excited to get to the discussion. I know we're only on the first episode, but this is <laughs> this is one of uh, Wolf's kind of crunchier stories. There's going to be a lot to discuss. We're going to be able to walk through a lot of what's happening a little more slowly, a little more critically in each recap episode, which is going to set us up really great for the discussion, though. If you're listening far in the future, you might just listen to the discussion episode if you're really familiar with the story. But that's not the only thing. We also have some really exciting Patreon announcements. Yeah, our network, the Clay Temple Media Network, is now up to five podcasts, six if you count the monthly Patreon episodes as well. So we've had to figure out how we want to do the voting for Elder Sign, our, our weird fiction podcast in which all of the stories that we cover are selected by our Patreons. And we have settled on the scheme of holding votes every other month. Uh, we're going to do this the last week of odd-numbered months. So if you're a patron who's eligible to vote, look for those emails. They come from SurveyMonkey, though they've got our name on them. And you can just expect them to come the last week of odd-numbered months. We won't make a ton of announcements about that. We don't want to annoy people. We don't want to cram people's inboxes with several different announcements just so they know the votes are happening. Now we've said it on the air, you know they're happening. One more piece of business, though, on this, which is that if you are a patron at the Keeper level or above, you also have the right to nominate stories for those Elder Sign votes. So if you've not already taken advantage of that, drop us a note. 
tweet us. Say something on the forum. Let us know what you'd like to cover over on that show. We've already done one of these uh, stories. On our Patreon feed right now, you can find The Star Stealers by Edmund Hamilton. It's a fantastic story. We had a blast covering it. And uh, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon so you can go listen to it. So with all that in mind, all the business out of the way, I think it's time to get into this story, the death of Dr. Island. Glenn, how does this story open? Well, this story begins with an epigram, which is becoming customary for these wolf novellas. In fact, I think we should probably start some sort of drinking game about this. They sort of guess if it has an epigram or not. In this case, the epigram comes from the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. And the poem is this. I have desired to go where springs not fail, to fields where flies no sharp and sided hail, and a few lilies blow. And I have asked to be where no storms come, where the green swell is in the heavens dumb, and out of the swing of the sea. These lines comprise the entirety of a Hopkins poem called Heaven, Haven, A Nun Takes the Veil. I'm a big Gerard Manley Hopkins fan. He was a Jesuit priest and a poet who lived in the second half of the 19th century, and he converted to Roman Catholicism from Anglicanism while at college at Oxford University. There was kind of a, a weird conversion movement happening there where he became friends with Cardinal John Henry Newman, who was also a Roman Catholic convert from Anglicanism and a really great writer. One thing I want to point out about the printing of this poem for this story is that there's a variance between the printing in The Death of Dr. Island and the Oxford University press edition that I have. It's found in the line where the green swell in the heavens In the Oxford University press copy, rather than the word heavens being present, it says haven. So my copy says where the green swell is in the havens dumb. And and so I wonder if Wolf has made this substitution on purpose or if it's just a misprint or the poem he read had heavens instead of haven. But I think as we get deeper into the story, we'll find that the differences between heaven and a haven, the definitions of those words, is kind of a core tension within the story. And additionally, this business with the swells and storms is also rather important to some of the more important image themes that Wolf develops in the later parts of the story. And whether or not it's meant to be heavens or haven, this, of course, is a pun, right, playing on kind of the the homonym of the the word, the similar sound of these two words, but also even a little bit, perhaps, the similar meanings of these two words, or at least a metaphorical similarity. But I think we're going to find that Wolf has done this on purpose, because, in fact, that's uncertain if this story is taking place in something that would really be a haven, but it is definitely taking place in the heavens as we will come to see. But for now, the story proper opens on a beach where we are following a single grain of sand and we are zoomed in on the pit of an ant lion. And this is a a type of insect that is neither an ant nor a lion, but in fact resembles a, a dragonfly. The larvae of this insect lie in sand traps that they make, and they live off the ants that fall into them, hence the name. And this is going to turn out to be something of a metaphor in this story. Right. And we'll see the return of this kind of insect imagery before we get to the end of the story and the role that this sort of creature might play uh, in the life of the whole island, at least in terms of its symbolic meaning. All right. Well, we're like five minutes into this episode, and we're still only one sentence into the story. So let's get through this opening now. The antlion pit is just a microcosm of what is really going on here, which is that a much bigger pit opens up on this Palm Beach. This pit is artificial. It's made by humans, and it culminates in a hatch. And out of this hatchway now emerges a 14-year-old boy. The hatch slams shut behind him, and he goes to work trying to find it again beneath the sand. But although he scrapes his fingers raw on the sand-filled organic plastic, he just can't find the edges again. So he is stuck here 
wherever here is. I really love the opening of this story. It, just in this first paragraph, Wolf uses personification to give the sand, the trees, even the inanimate hatch a type of agency. The grain of sand trembles. The antlion angrily flings sand. The sand around the pit shifts drunkenly. Coconut palms bend and watch. And so we see within this first paragraph, Wolf ascribing characteristics and motivations to these objects that make the island feel really alive, that give the island agency. And while these objects are animated with, you know, Wolf using this technique of personification, the boy is described to us in a way that really diminishes the fullness of his humanity. He's had some sort of surgery. He moves his head side to side like a reptile. He does it in the same way, the narrator says, that people breathe. And so the narrator won't comment on this again. The same way no narrator in literature at all needs to comment on when their characters are breathing. (laughs) But in this brief paragraph, Wolf does not just associate the boy with reptiles in general. He also associates him specifically with a rearing snake and a frog. The imagery here is so tight, and it is 100% in service to the story. They aren't merely effective similes and metaphors like you might find in just good descriptive writing. Wolf is really balancing the scales in terms of humanity in favor of the island rather than the boy. And I am hooked by this opening. Yeah, these similes are great. We can think of all of the things that snakes, serpents stand for in our culture, in a a Judeo-Christian tradition. We've seen him deploy this with great skill in a story by John V. Marsh. But of course, then the frog, right? When we think of what might a frog stand in for, of course, what we're thinking of is science experiments. And I think these are all going to turn out to be at play here, as we will find out as we go. And also in this opening section, we get one of Wolf's really great nature descriptions here that sets the stage for us. It's so awesome. I just want to read it. I always love to read these. People know this. Ahead of him, the sand sloped gently down towards sapphire water. There were coconuts on the beach and seashells and a scuttling crab that played with the finger-high edge of each dying wave. Behind him, there were only palms and sand for a long distance, the palms growing ever closer together as they moved away from the water until the forest of their columnated trunks seemed architectural, like some palace maze becoming, as it progressed, more and more draped with creepers and lianas with green, scarlet, and yellow leaves. The palms interspersed with bamboo and deciduous trees dotted with flaming orchids until almost at the limit of his sight, the hole ended in a spangled wall whose predominant color was black-green. I love this description on its own terms, just as poetry, just as a beautiful description. But I think what's really interesting here is that we can see so much of St. Anne in this description, though that's not actually where we are, as we'll find out later. I'm really glad you mentioned St. Anne here. I think as we go along with this story and uncover more and more about what is happening, Wolf is doing something with the paradisaic imagery in this story, in the world of Dr. Island. He's doing something that he's also doing in the fifth head of Cerberus, and particularly with the inversion of whether or not St. Anne is an Eden, is a paradise, between the fifth head of Cerberus, a story by John V. Martian, and VRT. And I think we'll really need to ask ourselves in our discussion what Wolf is doing bringing our protagonist into this sort of place. Again, is this a haven or a heaven? And if so, who is it made for? And if we're thinking about this comparison with St. Anne, and, and we're still thinking about St. Anne as the, the purgatory in Gene Wolfe's Divine Comedy, 
then this opening image of this 14-year-old boy being shoved into this place through a hatchway that he can't get back out of, almost as a, a type of prison, uh, I think that lines up pretty well. So we're going to have to find out what this character is doing here. So yeah, it's time now to learn a little bit about this 14-year-old boy. The water here is warm and it's fresh. This is no saltwater ocean, even though it resembles the ocean. He hangs out on the beach for a while, just listening, but the only sounds are the wind and the surf. And then he begins to scream, with each breath ending in a gibbering, ululent note. It's a great Lovecraftian phrase there that Wolf uses. And here's where we learn that this is something that he likes to do. Once, he had even screamed this way for 14 straight hours, 14 hours and 22 minutes to be precise, and his screaming was only brought to an end when a nursing nun injected him with some kind of sedative, even though she didn't have the doctor's permission to do so. But then the boy stops screaming, and he listens again to see if his disturbance has changed anything about his environment. And perhaps it has. Now he hears a voice in the surf, the sound of the small waves lapping on the shore, begins to talk to him. The boy tells the surf his name. It's Nicholas Kenneth DeVore. The surf calls him Nick, but the boy just turns and walks back inland. But the voice is there, too, speaking now from a palm tree. The voice understands that the boy doesn't want to be called Nick, but prefers Nicholas. And now the voice introduces itself as Dr. Island. And Nicholas asks what it is. Is Dr. Island a, a machine? Is, is Dr. Island a person or some kind of committee? And the voice says... All that and more. It is the spirit of this island. It's tutelary genius. Now, Nicholas does not believe what Dr. Island says, and so he just ignores him in the way that 14-year-old boys do. And now, cryptically, Dr. Island says, You may wish to be alone with your thoughts. I would like to say that we have made much more progress today than I anticipated. I feel that we will get along together very well. So this is all some great wolfish world building where we're not sure what's going on and we're trying to piece together some hints and some clues from very sparse information. And we do get a few really solid hints and clues. For instance, Nicholas, in his perspective, in his point of view, which we're now really fixed in, he finds no hints of disinfectants in the water, which could indicate that he is used to sterilized environments or some kind of bureaucratic institution. We get mentions of nurse nuns who administer injections. The island is called Dr. Island by its friends, although Nicholas does not want to call it that. He doesn't want to admit friendship with the island just yet. And as you pointed out, Glenn, Dr. Island has some sort of agenda, though we're not sure what it is. So we can do with that what we will right now in the story, but things will definitely become more clear as the story goes on. I'd also like to make some brief notes on our protagonist's name, Nicholas Kenneth DeVore. There was a Harvard anthropologist and evolutionary biologist who studied humans as primates and was publishing his studies in the 1960s and 70s. Now, this person's name is Irvin DeVore, and it may be the case that Wolf has not read him, but Wolf, we know, is interested in anthropology. And the coincidence of the name of the main character in this academic seems too difficult to ignore, especially as we learn more about what sort of things are taking place on the island. Mark Aramini also helpfully points out that Devor is kind of close to devour, and that may have some sort of connection that's important when we get to our discussion of the story. And here we see this, the style of the story shift a little bit, or the technique that Wolf is using shift. The objects of the island act in a more naturalistic way as Nicholas 
kind of takes on the point of view character. The, the palm trees respond to their environment rather than having agency of their own. And the personification of the island is really muted, even as the surf is talking to Nicholas. So Wolf is doing some brilliant uh, craft work here as he's making the island seem more natural from the perspective of our point of view character, our protagonist, and even giving the island a voice. And at the same time, we're not sure if the island is alive or if Nicholas is crazy. It's it's a really, really brilliant writing. And this is kind of a ridiculous setting for this story. The idea of just walking out the studio door here and realizing that things in our environment are speaking to us. The, I don't know, for us, it would really be more telephone poles and I guess uh, the, the voices of the, the ambulance sirens as they go by speaking to us. That's absurd, right? You can't imagine being thrust into an environment like that and having to adapt to that, having to cope with that. And Nicholas here is, I think in some way, remaining kind of calm and is just trying to see what his environment is, trying to learn what this environment is and what the rules are to suss out as much information as he can. And he actually just ignores Dr. Island here for a while until there's some information that he can't figure out for himself. And this is where the light is coming from. And so he asks Dr. Island this question. And when there is no answer, Nicholas walks back to the beach to just continue observing this new environment that he's in. And he sees that far off in the distance, the, the water curves upward, while to his left and right, the beach curves away like a, a perfect circle. And so he walks along this curve of the beach, and he sees another human figure far away. And then when he turns around, he sees another walker behind him. But Nicholas ignores these people. They're, they're quite far away anyway. And he watches the fish and the birds. And now he realizes that the light is dimming and also that he's growing hungry. This hunger is going to linger. It's going to be a main part of this story, which I think uh, is a great observation of Marx to see devour in his name in a story that's so much about being hungry. And Nicholas, now he, he chants the name Dr. Island, but this does not summon the voice to him. And so he decides to go for a swim. And this is something that he learned to do in the treatment tanks on Callisto as part of an effort to improve his coordination. And this is the first hint that we get that we are dealing with a spacefaring civilization, as Callisto is one of Jupiter's moons. And when Nicholas is done swimming, it becomes dark. And so he goes to sleep on the beach. And Wolf gives us a great description of Nicholas's face in this moment. I'll, I'll just read this. The right side of his taut, ugly face relaxing first so that it seemed asleep, even while the left eye was open and staring, his head rolling from side to side, the left corner of his mouth preserving, like a death mask, his characteristic expression, angry, remote, tinged with that inhuman quality which is found nowhere but in certain human faces. Uh, love that last juxtaposition. And we learn a lot about Nicholas in this description, but I particularly do love this idea that we human beings are where we go to find inhumanity. Yeah, I don't think this is the, the first time Wolf has brought this idea up in his fiction, but I don't think he's ever put so fine a point on it as he does here in this story. The description of Nick's face is incredibly important, and it really sets up a physical manifestation. We're introduced to the real conflict within Nicholas that we'll see resolved by the story's end through this physical description of the face. I mean, we, we really have to point out how much Wolf is showing us about how disturbed Nicholas really is. 
we learn that Nicholas enjoys his hunger the same way he might have enjoyed gashing his arm at another time. This kid is not okay, right? Um, but th- this bit about people on the island that Nicholas can't catch up with, he sees ahead and behind him, is also worth keeping in mind. And I, I won't say more about it now, as we'll get to a deeper description of its meaning later on in the story. But Wolf is really up to some tricks here that I think are, are pretty neat. In the episodes to come, Wolf the Engineer is going to show up in a big way, and I'm not sure I ever quite wrap my head around what Wolf the Engineer is doing, or at least everything that he's doing in this story, so that'll be fun in the, the future episodes. Yeah, I've got some ideas, but I uh, don't have any technical background, so when we start revealing more about what is happening on the island, we're going to rely heavily on our listeners to inform us if either of our ideas are correct. All right, so Nicholas has gone to sleep on the the beach here, and now when he awakes, it is just before dawn. And walking a little further up the beach, he finds a 25-year-old man roasting a fish on a fire. One thing I don't think we've quite emphasized, by the way, is that everyone in this story is naked. Everyone arrives here naked. It might be a little bit of a birth imagery there, but it also maybe supplies a little comedy when we call it to mind here. So 25-year-old naked man roasting fish on a fire. And Nicholas hangs back, watching. This seems like a good plan. But then he introduces himself. But the, the whole time Nicholas has been there, the man has just completely ignored him. And he continues to do so even as Nicholas announces his presence. And now when Nicholas asks this guy for some fish, this guy just attacks him. And Nicholas escapes into the water and then returns to the beach much further up. But he's still hungry. I mean, he's just ravenously hungry. We know that he went to bed hungry. He's now slept the whole night through, still with nothing to eat. So he's going to try again. But now the voice of Dr. Island is finally back, and and this time in the mouths of the, the forest birds. And Dr. Island tells Nicholas that this man is named Ignacio, and that Nicholas should really be careful with Ignacio. Ignacio sees Nicholas here again, and this time he motions for Nicholas to join him, but the whole thing is a trick. And as soon as Nicholas reaches out for some some food for this fish, Ignacio grabs his wrists and then punches him in the face. And then again and again until Nicholas's lips gush blood. And this is where we're going to leave off this episode with Nicholas losing consciousness, being pummeled by this guy. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. And we have no idea what's going on. You know, Wolf is pointing out to us again the disjointed nature of Nicholas's face in this section, but Nicholas doesn't really seem to be able to fight back. There's nothing he can do. And his need to meet his uh, hunger to survive overwhelms his sense of safety. And, and that's something we'll see developed in this story, I think, is Nicholas's journey to a humanity beyond mere survival. We also have to talk here about the name Ignacio. Basically, this name comes from the Latin for fire. And we meet Ignacio at the fire. And as we learn about Nicholas in the next sections, we're going to see if there's some connections between Nicholas and fire as well. We'd be remiss to point out here that there are also many significant Ignacios in the Catholic Church. One I want to point out here, St. Ignacio of Loyola, uh, because he founded the Jesuit order, And so I think this is something to keep in mind here, the connection between these names, especially as our epigram is from a Jesuit priest. Yeah, I think there's some obvious emphasis there, some good parallels. And of course, Nicholas, also the the name of a saint, though I don't 
think that this kid's actually Santa Claus, but the the actual Saint Nicholas might have some bearing on what's happening in the story as well. We'll have to wait till later episodes to start explicating that when we have a little more plot, a little more characterization. But yeah, some sense of maybe some allegory going on here, or at least the possibility for some type of allegorical reading. And if not allegorical, definitely uh, mythological, but that will all be developed in later episodes. That's going to do it for this one, though. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. A short episode this week, as we are at the mercy of where Wolf has decided to place his section breaks. He didn't have us in mind when he was doing that. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Join us over at the forums to discuss this episode, or you can wait for later episodes or till we get to the discussion to let us know what you thought of this section of the death of Dr. Island. If you aren't already, we really do hope you'll become a supporter on Patreon. And if you do, you'll not only get us to the Book of the New Sun much more quickly, you'll also get access to dozens of awesome bonus episodes and then more each month. Next time, we'll be covering up to page 102 of this story. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>